Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where an historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Are stomachs actually just full of organs? Whose side is Cat really on? What's the ship name for Juniper and Aisha? Jaisha? Aisha? Per? per? Eh, I'm not sure. I'm really more of a Team Knox guy. Sooner or later, the tower always gets its due. Crazy saying. This time around, my dear listeners, our dear listeners, the dear listeners that belong only to themselves, this time around, we see Catherine's first real trials of command. She's had trials of administration with supply. She's had trials of position in demand, but now this is her first real trial of command. This is a chapter that we all remember because it's the one where... Catherine is confronted with Calwyn deserters who stabbed a guy to maybe death, we don't know. Not dead yet. And she has to deal with it. And like so many of her problems, she solves it with drinking. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a strong chapter for establishing who Cat is and what her ethos is for command and how she, how she handles tough situations. And this is a doozy of a tough situation for sure. But... The chapter starts off nice and peacefully. It absolutely does. Uh, and weirdly for something peaceful, it does so by, I think, very plainly alluding to the English. The first line is, Spices were a rarity in Callow, and before Otter, I'd only ever tasted salt. And that's just wild to me. Unless she has a very specific understanding of spices as a very narrow band of things, but bear with me. If she's calling salt a spice, what flavoring agents don't qualify by her definition? Is even rosemary a spice to her? I wouldn't particularly include it as a spice, but it's a spice drawer element. But I wouldn't call salt a spice, you know? But the thing here, the thing that gets me, is that spices are apparently not unspeakably rare or out of the grasp of the common man in lore, because in the next 
paragraph, she writes, the amount of spices used to season the rice alone would have sold for enough in lore to buy three meals. That's a lot. Don't get me wrong. Something worth three meals to be used in one meal. It's a fair bit of money, but I absolutely eat meals that are worth 10 times less than other meals in what I cook at home. Be it, you know, the cheapest ramen noodles I can find versus a heavily vegetabled and well-flavored Penang curry. Does the orphanage just keep tight pockets and she never was given anything? She never splurred? She never scrounged? It just seemed... I'm just interested. Well, the orphanage not making the food taste good is very believable. It's an orphanage. They kind of have a reputation. And Kat not splurging on expensive food also really checks out. She's... As a child, she wouldn't have had money. Once she had money, it was specifically for the purpose of, you know, war college, of the Imperial Imperial Officer School. So It was back before she knew she was getting a scholarship. Right. I mean, honestly, yeah. So she wouldn't have spent the amount of, you know, if what we're talking about here would be buying a plate of food somewhere that has spices, which means it's going to be more than three times the price because you're paying for the meal and the spices at that point. So she can look at it as a nice treat, but also she wouldn't have known what she was missing. So maybe she wouldn't have sought out spiced food, I guess. It is, yes. You can smell it. The, I mean, not if your entire life is spent nowhere near the people who are rich enough to afford spiced food like this. Fair. The, probably the strongest smelling food she's been around is, you know... Potatoes. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, like, onion, but <laughs> sure. Onion? Well, here's the thing about onion. Okay. I don't care for it. But the other thing about onion is she says, the chicken with caramelized onion sauce that accompanied it wasn't exactly my favorite. I'd never been one for sweets. I mean it. I don't care for onions, so I'm not an expert in caramelized onion sauces, but I would consider chicken with a caramelized onion sauce to be savory, not a sweet, even if it was sweet. I wouldn't call it a sweet. I wouldn't talk about my personal distaste for most sweets when talking about a sweet chicken dish. It's Is that just my idiolect, or...? Uh... A caramelized onion sauce is going to be sweet. Among savory foods, it's very sweet. For somebody who probably hasn't had sweets very often, I mean, this is a faux medieval setting, you know? The sweets are just not really a, a major part of people's lives. This could be one of the sweeter things that cats had as part of an actual meal, you know? Uh, onions are a pretty sweet food, especially when cooked and especially when caramelized. So, you know... You add a, you caramelize them and you uh, sugar them up a little bit and yeah I, I I don't know that again I agree I wouldn't call it a sweet but it's a sweet dish sweet it starts off with her eating in a tavern in the sword and cup which was Aisha's old haunt where she had managed to finagle a deal for her legionaries everything's a little cheaper they frequent that place everyone wins it's great and Catherine herself enjoys easy access to a private room because she's arguably one of the 30 most important people in the empire. I think legally speaking, she's probably got a, ta a case for top 10. 
which is wild. Honestly, (laughs) she's been in praise for a few months. So legally speaking, I think it's also what you can get away with, which helps the high seats get over her. Even if she's legally above, she's probably legally not above if they can manage to be above without being legally above. Yeah, I mean, fair. It, it's a little, it's praise, I guess, is is what we're saying. Uh, but she and her legionaries tend to frequent this location, except for the Calowins, who prefer a different tavern, which is run by a retired member of the 13th Legion. Reading this the first time, I just, you know, read through it, because all the numbers blur together and right. such. But nowadays, hey... Hold on. Who's in charge of the 13th Legion? <laughs> oh, no. That was, that was something. That, that's the Callowin Legion, everyone. Yes, that's, the, the, that's the special Callowin Legion, led by, for those who don't remember, one Jeremiah Holt, which makes what you said just so top-notch, clever, nice, nice job. Real cleverness is explaining the joke. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. Uh, well, so she's in this this tavern, um, and you know we're talking about things that we recognize now on a reread. Cat uh, is talking about, well, internally talking about her upcoming campaign uh, and what she found out in the tower specifically, and how that's all pretty weighty stuff. But the thing that she spends a moment thinking about here is that the warlock and his son were in Summerholm, and that that is the most immediate danger in her opinion first of all she gets it and second of all it's fun on a reread here because ah the warlock and his son these you know particularly dangerous people the sovereign of the red skies all the you know we have these stories about them and we don't i mean there are a couple of cuties you know they're they're great bunch of just some wonderful people uh, well maybe not apprentice is a wonderful person and you know cats sitting here contemplating how dangerous it is to be getting near them it, it's it's great she hasn't met them and they become some one of them becomes such an important friend how dangerous it how dangerous it is to be near them yeah uh historically it's or perhaps not historically but futuristically it can be rough just being in the same city as warlock or within vitrification distance of masego that just yeah. It, it, they're good. Uh, well, no, they're not. But you're entirely right about that balance between they're such cuties, and no, they are some of the most terrible beings <laughs> For ever. Sure. She writes, she tells, she recounts. We've gone through this before. We will mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. But for all that the man, Warlock, was my teacher's ally, I'd have to tread very carefully around him. People didn't get a nickname like the Sovereign of the Red Skies by cultivating pretty gardens. Metal name, I'm very glad that when we find out whence it came, it turns out, yeah, totally metal. But also, (laughs) we get to know Warlock, and in so many ways, he's the sweetest, kindest, most domestic uh, of all the calamities. He's a real buddy to the rest of them, or at least the ones he wants to be a buddy to. Mm-hmm. And also, he never gets a taste for Catherine. And he's right, but <laughs> he he's insightful. He's willing to marry a demon, but he's hesitant to trust Catherine around his son. I also, I do want to comment, uh, you don't get a nickname like the Sovereign of Red Skies. 
We don't normally call a nickname those, like we don't normally or she's saying that people don't get a nickname like the Sovereign of the Red Skies. And we don't normally refer to that kind of thing as just a nickname, but you know, we'll let it slide. Uh, and you know, she says by cultivating pretty gardens. And while we don't he doesn't get the name by doing that, he is the sovereign of the red skies, and also if we found out that Warlock were cultivating pretty gar- gardens, it would be wholly unsurprising. He's just got that vibe about him, you know? Actually, the pretty garden he cultivates for a time is sort of the founding trauma of his son's whole arc. Fair, I suppose. With a knock at her door, and she's told that Senior Mage Carmela is here, and Catherine regards this as a pleasant surprise. Which is moving fast from a character who... A few chapters ago, was barely a footnote in the text. Yeah, Cat. Cat's interested though. Uh, since the last time she was on screen, really, she was being very powerful and cute. Uh, and I think Cat actually specifically mentions that pretty soon here. But uh, it, you know, what are you, what are you gonna do? Somebody's hot. They do hot magic. What more could you want? When you say hot magic, is that a fireball pun or just the fact that there is something about a woman who slaughters indiscriminately? I mean, it's both. Kat is very clear that that Carla's magical ability is very attractive. But this is concerning because she should have been coordinating with Ratface to make sure our healers had all the necessary stock for what promised to be a rather bloody affair. And we talked in chapter one that, oh... In this setting, mages, what some tabletop gamers might call the arcane, are involved in healing, which often would be the realm of priests, which it also is here. It's an interesting thing about this setting. But the senior mage has to coordinate for stock, which makes sense on thinking about it, but I had to think about it. Because magic seems to be a physical resourceless mending. Oh, your arm is broken. Let me put my hands over you and get tired or what have you. Boom, now your arm is better. But because of the gap between that and actual health, of course a mage leader will also have to be aware of their stocks and supplies. They have to make the call, what can we spend resources on, what can we not, what can we mundanely compensate for. I just think that's nifty. That's inventory and logistics, the two best things to read about in any fantasy novel. Yeah, in fact, the rest of this episode, should we just discuss resource acquisition, logistics, things like that? I'm on board if you are. Absolutely. Let's start with mage outfitting. Or let's start with the outfitting of the army. Great. Full legionary armor. They wear plate. They've got a bunch of Roman words for their stuff, right? Sorry, (laughs) meets and words for their stuff. There you go. But we know that mages are armored differently. But it's wild to me how and why. In a to bring it up again but a ttrpg setting many of them such as say pathfinder give spellcasting groups less ability to wear armor or say armor interferes with the motions of magic or even metal messes with the connection to nature or what have you but the reason or and a lot of settings excuse this too with mages are physically weak they're not fighters if you look at say the locked tomb setting we have the fighting class of the cavaliers who are big strong sword women but the necromancers are just sickly little half-drowned rats who are inexplicably 
incredibly sexy to everyone around them. Inexplicably? And, oh, I'm sorry. That was an extra syllable there. <laughs> Who are explicably, explicably, in fact, explicably. But here, the mages are part of the army. They train with the army. They are soldiers in pretty much every relevant sense. Specialized, but that's also what a soldier is at the end of the day. You've got the cavalry, you've got heavies, you got boring people. The reason given for their less armor is the mage lines and companies were issued a kit lighter than even the regulars, since the use of magic was so physically draining. Mages had been known to pass out inside the old one before the legions had adjusted their kit. The mage work done by these physically fit mages who are not somehow genetically or constitutionally lesser than the other soldiers is more pronouncedly too heavy for them because of the exertions of magic than heavy armor is for the soldiers involved in hand-to-hand -hand combat to the death. Magic is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, th that is a... an in This is an interesting passage because, you, you know, you could say, yep, magic is draining, yada, 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 but if magic is draining and it's more draining than <laughs> fighting in a battle in melee, you would still think that heavier armor would be fine because... I'm tired and I'm wearing armor. I can't really move that much. Why is that a problem? Where soldiers get tired and have to keep moving. You would expect them to be running into the same issues. I guess it, it may just be a simple matter of the mages can get away with lighter armor because they're not expected to be in the front lines and because they uh, apparently have an extra, you know, they have a line attached to each line of mages who has. Uh, the like larger shields the um, that we that we saw in the uh, uh, goodness the assault on the fortress uh, back in the first couple of games here the first couple of instances where we saw legionary tactics so it could just be yep uh, you can if we can afford to have lighter things because they're not in the front lines but yes it is the balance between how hard it is to physically fight somebody to the death versus magic it's interesting. Continuing our episode on inventory and logistics, Catherine does take some inventory of Kepler's traits. Yeah, uh, it's what we had just talked about, uh, why she's so attracted to, to Kaladin here. And it's, but it's a good line. <laughs> uh, and it's basically, uh, Kat says, it would be a little shallow of me to develop an interest just because of the red hair and her ability to light a man on fire at 20 paces. A little shallow, yes. Understandable, also yes. You do you, Kat. Uh, but unfortunately, the uh, senior mage is not here on personal business, but rather on personnel business. Which qualifies for the theme of the episode because it's taking stock of the army. There's a situation in camp, and when Catherine complains that they couldn't let her wait to finish, the redhead's lips twitched. Deserters are rarely so considerate. Deserters, that got her my full attention. And this is interesting to me. That's a real big deal. It's no longer absolutely down to the second urgent since they have been caught. They're in custody. But this is an issue which is smoldering and will flare up into something. It must be dealt with. But when Kilimanjaro shows up, she goes through the proper protocol. She has a staff member at the bar announce her get Catherine's permission, and then show up. This is a senior mage we're talking about. 
in a situation like this, why doesn't she come right up? Maybe stop at the door and knock, but who's going to actually stop an important legionary? I'm just impressed at the following protocol. Yeah, that is interesting. It it's not it's not an emergency situation, a situation that is emerging into something worse at this moment. But it's a pretty big deal. Uh Skipping the skipping the line, so to speak, does seem like it would be the play here, but it's also very, very early on in the fifteenth life, and there there could be some concern over precedent and wanting to be very by the book at the start until the culture develops. But who knows? It is it is interesting. Maybe she just noticed how Catherine keeps looking at her and thinks she's under extra scrutiny. <laughs> oh, actually, I like me, I, yeah. I better play all my cards right. That, that's very possible. Um, but uh, Kat's response to finding out about deserters is to say, are you telling me we've lost legionaries before we even left the wasteland? And while we know this isn't the case, what I'm about to say, because we've read the whole chapter, unsurprisingly, um, Kat doesn't know the background of these deserters yet. Assuming the deserters are pricey, which yeah, they very well could be, uh, I don't know. Were I a deserter and Precy, I would probably choose to desert in the wasteland if I was planning to, you know, where I can blend in with the general population very easily. But it's, uh, Kat is still surprised by this, by how soon it's happening, uh, which I guess makes some sense considering the Precy are here because they are legionaries and the Kalowans are here because they had no other choice, I guess. But uh, it's it still seems like a portion of her army would probably choose to desert on this side of the the Blessed Isle if they had the choice. Either way, though, the deserters work hot quickly, uh, apparently, by some excellent foresight by, unsurprisingly, Juniper. When Catherine finds out that they were caught by the patrols, she actually tells us, and to think I'd believe Juniper's insistence to change the patrol schedules randomly had been pointless. And I know it's early on, but Catherine should know better than to think anything Juniper does is pointless. Oh, exactly. It's At this point, Kat knows enough about Juniper to have more or less, after barely knowing her, decided, yep, you're in charge of my army, and is still questioning her. You, you can't do that. If you make her in charge, trust what she's doing. The only way I could be Juniper was by knowing what she would do. But luckily I knew that, because she would always make the right choice. Also, <laughs> Juniper made a choice, and there's no point to it. Exactly. That That is exactly... It's so funny that um, as soon as Juniper has actual command, Kat's starting to get a little hesitant. It's goofy. That said, while she thinks it's pointless, I think she's... There's also proof here that she went along with it anyway. Uh, so she may have thought, wow, this is a silly thing to do. But she followed it up by doing it anyway, because she does trust Juniper's call. So there is that. So taking stock of features, mm -hmm. can you can you just tell me if this feels a little odd, given the setting? Okay. Catherine asks, what happened? Why there's something unusual about this? What, what the thing that she's not being told is? Turns out some people got stabbed, whatever. But the senior mage grimaced again the expression out of place on her elfin face. I know there are elves and they have features. We know that there are fae and they have features. We're looking at a fae-blooded person. And I know elves are something of a joke in Callow. 
Because, you know, any idiots that go up there get what's coming to them. But, mm. wait, no, that's the Fae, too, somehow. Hmm. But regardless, Elfin Face? Weird choice. Yeah, I think that's just using our lingo, I guess, real-world meanings. Because Elfin uh, does the have... The real-world elves, okay. Well, I, okay, Elfin does have a meaning in, like, modern English. And it's pretty... The like the the what what that description means does align a lot with modern conceptions, cultural conceptions of what like a fae is, a fairy is. So I think it's Absolutely. just I think it's just that. But the fact that they have that term and it means this is interesting. I do agree. But at the end of the day, she's got a face, and two legionaries try to get away. Two legionary two legionaries got caught, and two legionaries had something of a scuffle. Yeah, uh, desertion is never looked on fondly by militaries for some reason. Um, but the reason is war is terrible. No sensible person would ever want to harm another human being, and or I was going to say in this case, an orc and a goblin. But oh, yeah. goblins! <laughs> okay. the The issue here is that on their during their escape, they also uh, injured via stabbing two legionaries one of which is in critical condition and may not survive and like oops. i said yep big oops because uh it's not good to desert from a uh standpoint of i don't want to be punished by a military but assaulting potentially killing another soldier in your own army that's a rough one that is a that is not a situation you want to find yourself in and yeah Cat, Cat agrees. She is very upset. I try to carefully curate my speech and the lines I read to maintain an all-ages rating on this podcast. So please, no one report me to Google, Apple, Spotify, Amazon. Catherine, mm-hmm. in fact, says the bloody idiots. That word's just between us. But she's upset. She is definitely upset. Uh, and again... With good reason. Desertion is apparently a big deal. Mm-hmm. She says it was bad enough because, or not because, she says it was bad enough. Unless there were some very extenuating circumstances, it was a capital offense. I think it's nifty that there's apparently room in there for very extenuating circumstances. I would not have expected a pricey law to be written with that kind of regard for individual estimations of situation well there's a very real chance that extenuating circumstances mean unnamed desserts in which case Ah, yeah that's fair i mean i know (laughs) like later on when ranger deserts all she loses is her name oops (laughs) (laughs) wow really really going after ranger huh well normally i respect those who could beat me up but ranger dies in a side note as she should. So, yeah, I uh, fully agreed. Because Catherine, at that point, at the final epilogue of the book, because this is how I do my podcast, is exercising her narrative authority over all named. Just like, as a named apprentice to the Black Knight, she has the legal authority to kill anyone under her command without bothering with the judicial niceties, which is fun because, of course, she holds the actual practical authority to do that. She can execute most anyone without repercussion until mm-hmm. it becomes a problem for someone more powerful than her. That's right. what being named is. 
Praise includes the legal authority there. If you can do it, go ahead. Cute. But at the same time, let's just say, I don't know, there was some sort of wandering peregrine or mm-hmm. uh, hmm, a dusty sojourner name For somewhere her. going around killing babies. They could get away with that even if they were good because you can just kill people if you're named. And if you don't lose the name, who's going to stop you? Yeah, I mean, that that tends to be how it works. Explicitly in some places, Price, and implicitly in others, Proser. That's why we need Cordelia. He's going to fix She's it. She's just so upset that he put a plague on that town. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fair, with good reason. Being upset about plagues is a very attractive trait. <laughs> Honestly. So apparently this law in Price, because it is the law, not just the custom... Mm. It was a holdover from the old days. Okay, sure. Yeah, we, the, yeah, praise has always been like that. Which militia had been careful to maintain. It had allowed my, cle- it had allowed my teacher to clean house in Callow as much as needed without seeking the tower's permission every time. And I think that's really nifty. Just one, if I may, one praise, two systems. Militia's very careful with Black's leash in praise proper because. He's going to upset the apple cart if given free reign. But in Callow, his methods work. Nobody in Callow is important enough there. He even just executes Mazes, and he can because at the end of the day, there are grounds to, and Mazes isn't worth worrying about because he got sent to Callow in the first place. Oh, he's a governor. Yeah, of Callow. <laughs> yeah. Or rather, in Callow. So the bad news is that someone got stabbed. Right. Bad. A bad stab. A bab, if you will. And when they tell Catherine about the details, most of the medical jargon goes over her head. But the gist of it seemed that one of the organs in the stomach that were too delicate to fix using magic had been torn through when the man had gotten stabbed. Now, having never taken biology, I see no problem with that sentence. But it's interesting. There are organs in the stomach that are too delicate to fix using magic. Obviously, too delicate to fix using magic means using the magics they have available to them. The proper name, the extraordinary individual, the divine intervention of a certain level could all fix that, I'm sure, because, you know, people can get resurrected. Right. However, with typical magics, apparently certain stomach organs are too delicate to fix. Okay, magic's not just a, I beam energy at you and you get 2d6 health back. A lot of TTRPGs today. Boycott the Pathfinder ripoff that Gary Gygax invented. Its owner company is bad. And stomach wounds are a terrible way to go. But thankfully, the Legionary had gotten a potion for the pain. And we have no answer to the question I'm about to ask. But what does potion mean? Because I could see, oh yes, if you put something together using items, it's a tincture or a medicine or a what have you, an elixir. And if you use magic, it's a potion. But painkilling really doesn't need anything extreme in pretty much any society with access to nature and a history of learning how to use it. We live in a beautiful modern age with opioids, which, despite the terrors of the opioid and opiate epidemics, are wonderful blessings. We can kill pain in so many ways. But they've had access to opium for a long time, and that's good stuff. It It'll help you out and also ruin you, but so will all the other stuff, right. as we've learned. Is the potion for pain magical? Are they just 
drugging these people to, I was about to say high heaven, but to the hell mouth itself? What does potion mean? And what are the drugs like in praise? I'm curious. Like, we know there are alchemies, like alchemists, that kind of thing fits in. What qualifies as alchemy? Right, exactly. And so that that's the question. It, it, it That doesn't answer the question. It just adds more layers to it, I suppose. I, I'm also curious. Uh, I don't recall... Hmm, I don't recall potions particularly coming up often uh, later in the story. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll pay attention for them, but I, I, I'm trying to think if, if any of the characters that we know, the important characters, use them. Um, and I don't feel like that happens. So I guess we'll just we'll see and this may be we we may never get more information on them but i'm curious as well when the concoctor shows up there might be some specific language that's true and there might not be right which i'm almost hoping for yeah honestly yeah juniper is however upset because they have so many foreigners and that's the problem it's like how the french foreign legion is always stabbing each other yeah uh this is something we talked about when they were when we were discussing the makeup of the 15th Legion within, you know, the last few episodes. Um, but Juniper is also unsure why this Legion is filled with so many Kaluans, uh, which is interesting because if this had been Ratface or if this had been uh, any number of leaders, even very talented ones, we could say, yeah, they wouldn't understand that there's maybe story reasons or Black is up to something or whatever. Um, but Juniper knows black personally or at least is familiar with him on a personal level and is still uncertain what this is what's going on and is frustrated by it which tells you there's some some deep movings going on here there's something behind this that isn't obvious and that shouldn't be obvious we talked at length about why it happened juniper doesn't know which means hey we weren't wrong for not knowing we're we're not you know uh it the the answer isn't plain to even the people who should know so that's interesting even even juniper is in the dark here she's not only in the dark about that however because catherine's keeping a secret from her and should because i don't know if she would survive revelation (laughs) yeah yeah cat uh Juniper complains that she wishes she had more time to train and drill this new Legion, maybe run a few war games. And unfortunately, they don't have that time because there's a rebellion on. And Pat thinks to herself, one day, maybe I'd tell her why Callow had rebelled now and not 10 years in the future. Not today, though. And I'd make sure she hit the Arag first. Kat is... She we, she obviously spends a lot of time dealing with the consequences of her actions, but the fact that she's thinking through, in order to tell my friend about this, I need to get her nice and drunk, uh, which, yeah, that makes sense, Kat, because what you're considering here is the fact that you fabricated a war for personal power so that you can help the explicit enemy of this war. Uh, yeah, that's a, a pretty rough situation, Um I can't imagine Juniper would hear about this and be like, "Yeah, well, you had to do what you had to do, Cat." <laughs> it's it's not a it's not a good look for the squire. And luckily, she can deflect blame right now because there are other agents involved. Beautiful, powerful, mommy agents. Catherine reveals to Juniper that though Black's been tight-lipped about it, 
She thinks there's more to this than just a rebellion, and the hellhound's dark eyes scrutinized her. Prosser? The most likely suspect, I grunted. You'd think after... You'd think that after their civil war, they'd leave the rest of creation alone for a while, but that's the principle for you. They're never happy unless they're chewing at someone else's borders. And I think that's interesting. Not in a I disagree way, but Prosser can't go north in any way. It, it's walled off by the dead king, by the ratlings. Mm-hmm. That's not an expandable direction yet. Uh, <laughs> but the principate actually devoured what is now the Principate. The Lycanese were conquered, apparently, somehow. All their fortresses were facing the wrong way. They were added by conquest. The Dominion? Yeah, there are always border skirmishes there. How often is Callow in the sights of the Principate, actually? They're very geographically inconveniently separated for any expansion in that direction. You'd have to, like, burn a stairway through the mountains or something to really get at them. And that would just be completely infeasible, so... I mean... Prosser does have access. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a an interesting claim, just generally speaking. But not when you've got a history of them being the enemy. That's the kind of, I guess, propaganda that you are used to, that you expect, that you just internalize. True. Propaganda's nasty stuff. Nationalism. Not even once. Perfectly. Well, I guess it's not. Nation's a rough word for praise patriotism not even once but of course if they fight someone else they have to fight them differently yes uh juniper comments that uh, if they end up fighting the principate they'll need to adjust tactics accordingly because right now the legions are kind of designed around fighting their main enemy Kalo, and Kalo is unique in its reliance on heavy cavalry which it's a nation of horse girls Right, it's a nation of horse girls. Um, it's a nation of strings. And Juniper says that they, the Principate, don't rely as heavily on cavalry as the kingdom did. True. Absolutely true. Also, true for literally everybody on Colernia, Callow is the horse girls. Uh, you've got the Principate, which is pretty infantry-focused, as we've seen. And, you know, Not even, like, good infantry most of the time, just... right. It's the levy people. The le- it's the levies and the champions, basically. And I mean lowercase champions. Prace is heavy infantry and monsters and mages. Uh, the free cities, yeah, you've got like the uh, the cataphract situation. They're great. That's also, there are a small number of cataphracts, and it's a big deal that they have that number. It's not like Kala, where the main way that they win wars is their... Is their heavy? Is their knight? Uh, so saying, oh, watch out! The Principate doesn't use horses like Callow does. That's yeah. The legions yeah. are designed for dealing with horses. They will never deal with horses quite like they do in fighting the kingdom of Callow at its height. You did skip a few things, so because the free cities are also nothing to lose, slave armies and unstoppable will of the people, much like in real life. Sure, which is horrifying and then the dominion what how do they fight you know with a weird weird's a unkind term you know with unique zealotry is that the term we want to use yes it's it's i i did skip some details i was just drilling in on the people who do have horses uh because 
you gotta you gotta talk about those. No one else really does. It is interesting how horse light, specifically, you know, I guess most of Clernia is, especially like Prace and Proser, the very the two maybe wealthiest states. Absolutely. Clernia, or it's just that Kalos stole all the horses. Kalos and thieves. You know the saying: if your horse goes missing in Prace, you'll find it next week on sale in Kalos. I do know that phrase. Yeah. Speaking of things that everybody knows, okay. I'd never seen Juniper spend her personal time with anyone other than Aisha, actually. Though I put no stock in Robert's constant insinuations those two were a couple. The Goblin Captain wasn't exactly a credible source. He'd once spent the better part of a fortnight composing a ballad about the tragic forbidden love between Nock and one of the oxen the 15th used as beasts of burden. It had actually been a pretty catchy tune, not that I would ever admit that out loud. All I'm saying is Robert is perceptive, and I'm not the biggest fan of Nock because of this. You don't support Nock and the Ox? I don't. Love is love. Actually, it is some sort of monstrous pricey ox, isn't it? That's fine. Actually, yeah, it's it's probably a real cutie. Probably can talk or something. That does sound like a hot ox. <laughs> get me an ox who can talk. Um, <laughs> Hashtag get me an ox like that. Um. So... The, uh, the the conversation moves forward with uh, Juniper and Kat trying to reach a conclusion on how to deal with the deserters. Uh, reminder, everybody, that's what this most of this chapter is about. I know we've been diving into a lot of uh, tangential topics, but I promise the chapter mostly focuses down pretty hard on these deserters. It's, it's a pretty concise chapter on, on this topic. People do not tune in to hear about the events of the chapter. I mean... <laughs> Fair. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm re-providing context for what I'm about to say. Uh, so they're they're discussing what to do about the deserters, and Juniper suggests that Kat keeps some distance. Kat says she can't. She's got to be involved personally. That's why she's here in the first place. And Juniper says that she meant afterwards. Warlords don't explain themselves to the ranks. They do what needs to be done, and the clan falls into line. Uh, fair that, I mean, among options from Juniper's perspective, that's a pretty solid one. It keeps Kat involved making the decision, but it keeps her distant in that she is not spending time relitigating her decisions afterwards. Uh, so fine, but it's cool. I know that, uh, Hawkram and Juniper especially refer to her as Warlord a lot. The title, not the name, of course. But high title, right? But here we've got. I just had a thought that Cat at this point, especially, is not really a warlord, but she's also not not a warlord. She kind of she's she's not the traditional warlord of uniting the whatever and going to just a constant warpath. She's just the leader of one legion, but also she's orcish enough to make it work i guess she kind of slides into that title a little bit and we get uh she actually directly references this uh she says that my name isn't warlord juniper (laughs) i don't know about you but i had a, a brief moment where i had a vision of a slightly alternate reality wherein our protagonist of this story actually does become warlord i can see this young Callowan orc rising up half orc rising orcs up to become warlord 
if she focused her efforts, especially at certain points in this story, on the clans rather than on race, for instance, you could see it happening. I would pay good money to read that book if E.E. wrote it. Oh, sure. Perhaps we should bring it up to him next time we have our discussions with him. Our weekly discussions. Right, naturally. Like most orcs, Juniper used the lower Mitsin word warlord, regardless of the gender of the person being referred to. The Kharthum word for the same meaning had no gender attached to it. And if she was aware of the inaccuracy, she didn't seem to care. We've talked about title and gender and the various ways that masculine titles on a gender not normally associated with it, blah, 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 blah. Cordelia is the best catalyst for those conversations. However, here, I just want to note, huh, I don't know if Kharsum is a gendered language, but apparently titles, jobs, perhaps, don't necessarily have gender. Nifty. Big fan of that. Gender language is a whole lot of fun, but gendering people in any restrictive binary or even trinary I think this one is particularly interesting because in English, we we have the word warlord, which is obviously two words, war, which is not gendered, and lord, which is traditionally a gendered word. Lord is, you know, we've got lord, we've got lady. Uh, and really only those two at that level that mean the same thing. We don't have a, a non-gendered version. But warlord, we don't in English really have an equivalent for. War lady is not a thing like you could make the word you could say the word obviously i'm not i'm not trying to prescriptivize english here but we don't really have the term war lady so saying that uh you know there's a gender situation going on here is interesting because if they were speaking english there is no equivalent you just you are at the very least a relatively standard vaguely academic dialect of american english yeah okay fair yes if if we're talking the english that i'm speaking (laughs) uh we don't really have another option for warlord. We have similar things, I guess. You you know, in we might use the term even general to replace it, or or war leader maybe as a gender neutral. But yeah, there's no real feminine version of that without changing another aspect of the meaning. We really just need to pioneer the word war noble, war boss. I actually like war boss. Yeah. That's a good one. It's not bad, actually. <laughs> and with the reach of this podcast, we too can shift the language. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Kat goes back to the Legion. She talks with Juniper. She goes in to see the deserters. One of them was older, a blonde-haired and blue-eyed man built like a brawler and sporting a purpling black eye. He'd been the one to speak to her as she walked in. The other was shorter and skinnier, brown-haired and dark-eyed. If the angle he was cradling his arm at was any indication, it had been broken pretty brutally. No surprises here, but I want to note this line just because we see what level of medical care the injured deserters have been given, which is to say, minimal to none. Yeah, probably actually none. You'd think the first thing you would do is at least set an arm, a broken bone, and that doesn't seem to be the case here, so yeah. Especially if you wanted use out of the person again i don't know how breaks actually work but sooner is the better for all medical things pretty much yeah i mean sometimes you have to wait for a thing to heal before you do another thing to it but this is first aid right yeah and i think that's probably just a a thing i think it's probably just because they're deserters i have a feeling that 
prisoners of war outside of like a specific battle situation where resources are used elsewhere probably get treated a little better than this you don't just throw them in a tent and like leave them with a broken limb but these are deserters nobody likes them clearly they are not intended to get better and rejoin the ranks though catherine does have the rank to put them in the ranks uh catherine comes in with a bottle of wine and some cups the cups here are noted to be iron did people drink out of iron the the rust metal is that a choice people made uh the metal that only rusts with exposure to moisture which is the thing that happens when you drink yeah i i don't know of i can't i can neither confirm nor deny i i've never heard of iron cups necessarily but i also haven't heard of explicitly not using iron cups it does seem weird i agree you gotta make your cups out of lead like an adult other than the fact that it's slowly neurotoxins you lead is an amazing fantastic material oh sure i'm a huge fan of lead so the blonde one was sergeant pike and then he and then we are told the other one had taken the option of adopting a new name when he joined the legions and went by albin great fantastic she thinks about the history of the name cool but you get the option to change your name when you do that cool great big fan not gonna lie yeah starting a new life you can have a new name cool go ahead why is there laws around names in a society that i assume does not have the same universalized records identification etc etc we have why can't i just walk out one day and say you know what my name's not Alban. My name is Catherine Foundlong. I'm very cool. Yeah, having the, the kind of census information necessary to know a person's name and track it would be odd. I, the only thing I can think of, and this is also a long shot, he's Callowin. Callow is basically a tax at this point, so they are incentivized to have pretty accurate records of Callowins. Also, actually, Cat um, goes on to think that um, Albin was well off uh, more than once. I think that it comes up more than one time. Like, there's more than one piece of evidence that he was relatively wealthy at some point, or that his family was at least. So it could be that he did need to change his name. Like, there needed to be a legal reason for him to be allowed to do it. That's very fair. Laws governing not to give into a dangerous trope that oh, wow, the upper class has it so hard because they have struggles that real people don't. But there are certain ways in which, in all of history, including the modern age, there are difficulties that the wicked ruling class has that we don't have to have, like the difficulty of finding parking for a super yacht, or mm-hmm. you have to keep your name because you're part of a dynasty of some kind, too. Also, if he's from a well-off family, the records, like from Price's end, it very well could just be, yeah, we keep track of the people that whose taxes actually make an appreciable contribution, like that they actually mean something. So very I, true. I can see that going a couple ways there, but it is I got yeah. A theory. Okay, let's hear it. When you join the army, the army has to call you something, and Black has records on the legions, so it doesn't really matter whether you change your name or not, but you got to give a name to the army, and that's your army name. And even if it doesn't matter, they officially say you can pick the name. Official policy is you can choose the name when you join, even if practical, like in practical terms, you probably would never be called on it if they didn't have that. This is just adding a layer of protection, which is 
actually probably an incentive for people. Hey, there's a way you can escape issues. You can change your name. You're 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 in the army now. It's a separation. That makes sense. You I may not that. have to officially be anybody before joining the army, mm-hmm. but if you've got an issue after you've joined the army, you are officially not whatever you officially were before. If you didn't want to have been right, you're officially a legionary now, and that's that's where your life starts legally, which is probably an exaggeration in some ways, and also understating the fact in other ways because actually that's how militarized states often work really that the soldiers are the people that well the rich people but the soldiers are the poor people that matter period exactly though he matters in two ways because he's apparently a little richy rich boy right so there's an interesting comment here that alban is the name of the first ruling dynasty of callow and cat takes this to mean that he was either in the imperial orphanages or that his family had been well off because not everybody could afford history lessons. Sure, I that sentence, or rather, the conclusion itself as a standalone thought makes sense. Not everybody can afford history lessons. Somebody who knows history is wealthy or state-educated. But I don't know that that follows from the guy chose a name from the founding myth of the state. There are people who don't know much about American history, but would recognize the name George Washington, for instance. Uh, maybe in Callow that's not the case, but I feel like in a setting like this where stories are so powerful, the most important name from the foundational myth of your state, you, most people probably know the name at least, I would imagine. Catherine is just out of touch with the working class. I, it couldn't have been more than four episodes ago that you used the phrase Catherine Foundling, hero of the common man or hero of the working class, one of the two. The thing about heroes, much like George Washington, is if you actually look at them, it turns out that while they have the hero status, they're pretty nasty. Catherine's pretty nasty. You heard Though it here, she folks. doesn't own slaves, unlike George Washington. <laughs> right. You heard it here, folks. All heroes are basically George Washington and nasty. Speaking of nasty things... Small detail and not actually necessarily nasty in itself, I think. But the other one, that is to say, Alban blurts out very quickly in the conversation, I, I didn't mean to stab the orc, ma'am. It was just, he was growling and I panicked and cool. Everything's fine here. I don't think he does anything nasty here. But I do want to note, he didn't say I didn't mean to stab him. I didn't mean to stab the legionary. I didn't mean to stab the patrol he says, I didn't mean to stab the orc. Race is the designating factor. Species race is the designating factor he has for the person. Mm-hmm. Just noting that. A piece of a picture, but not right. a caption. It's, I mean, it, it makes, it alone it's nothing. But we are, as we read this story swiftly, frankly, building a picture of how Callowans view non-humans. And it's not positive. And I don't want to generalize all Kaloans are racist from that, but there's a almost like a default, and we see that here that right. If this if they had stabbed a legionary who was a human, I don't think the sentence would have been, I didn't mean to stab the human, ma'am. It's the the othering is the reason that the, the race was used here. And the same thing happens when Pike talks about the person he injured, uh coming up in just a a minute here. Uh Pike says uh Basically, the the goblin I sliced up is okay. So there's, again, they specify because, you know, it's not just a person. It's a specific type of person. And that's important, even if the details don't matter. It mitigates their crime. 
Sure. In their eyes. And of right, course right, they're Calwin. Right. Uh ruler's eyes. Which they realize quickly they're on the same side as Catherine. Because she brings him wine and Pike is careful, you know. It could be poisoned or something. Pike only wets his lips after Catherine takes a second sip of her own wine poured from the same bottle. Which, mm. sure, caution, but come on. These are a bunch of Galloans. You're fine. Just wanted to know that detail. Yeah. Moving on. You know what I don't think we talk enough about? What's that? Race. <laughs> okay. So, the way race works in the world of the guide, we've got two different levels. We've got race meaning species. We've got orcs, we've got humans, we've got ogres, we've got drow, we've got big old giant boys, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then we have different human races. Soninke, Tagreb, Kalowin. We have relatively uh, light-skinned races, we have relatively dark-skinned races, we have people who have all sorts of characteristics of where they come from. Mm -hmm. However, the way races are discussed are never in, say, or maybe rarely, in 21st century Western English dialect ways of you got white people and black people and people of Asian descent. You've got, of course, they don't have words. They don't have Asia. Right. But here, she notes that if they had succeeded in their desertion, they would stick out like a sore thumb in Otter. And her next line, two white boys in a city where there couldn't be more than a few hundred expatriated Calowans. After having read the whole guide, is this the only point where pale-skinned people are called white? Which is, frankly, a misnomer, if close. There are very few pale-skinned people in our world who really get towards a color that would be white. Light peaches and beiges, reddish tones, pinks, but white's not actually a description. It's a word-given meaning, a word... It's a, I mean, it's a term that has other connotations, hence why it's mm -hmm. used by, like, there's, there's a weight to white that isn't just a descriptor, is basically what it is. There are white people who have relatively dark skin. Right. Mm -hmm. it, as far as does this show up again, I cannot, with any sort of comfort, guess. Um, it's definitely rare, because I, I did the same thing. I read the sentence and went, oh, white boys, huh? Uh, we don't see the term, you know... We don't see Kalowans or Dooney described as being white. We don't see the Suninke being described as black. They are Suninke. They're you know maybe dark or pale or that kind of thing. Uh, we do keep away from those modern terms pretty faithfully through most of the story. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's it doesn't it definitely doesn't come up often. I can't confidently say whether it comes up at all again. But it's definitely noteworthy. So both of these white boys are. Determined to be gallows recruits. The sergeant got into a fight with the city guard in Vale, fool. And the other boy, Albin, says that his family was implicated in a seditious movement. And implicated in quite the place. He was implicated in a seditious movement in Denier, uh, which doesn't really mean a lot to us. We don't know much about the city, except that that is the garrison, the garrisoned location of the 4th Legion. Uh, and the imperial governor there is apparently pretty much a figurehead for the actual ruler of the city, Marshal Ranker. Uh, Alban's family attempted sedition against a former matron. <laughs> Idiots. How is Alban alive? <laughs> the, I mean, 
what on earth? That there aren't many mistakes you can make that are that bad. That is a rough one. Not just in terms of the consequences, but also your chance of success is pretty close to zero. My only question here is why does Marshall Ranker choose to have a Calwin City? What? <laughs> I, and this isn't a why on earth. Which I'm just curious. Huh? Why did she elect to claim a city as her own, which she can do because she's Marshall Ranker? I mean, we know the goblins are well. Let's be specific here. We know the matrons have designs on parts of Callow. That's a pretty big thing. We know the matrons have designs. Yeah, fair. And, you know, this is just a step towards that, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some things at play here. Also, very possibly, Black asked her to, and legitimately, the marshals are very loyal to Black, so... Yeah. Um, Albin's worried because he did possibly kill the orc, even though he's still alive, but one of his stomach organs is messed up. Do orcs just have multi-chambered stomachs? Is that the thing? Do they one, do they ruminate? They have one one stomach for muscle, one sto- stomach for tendons, one for bone, one for or do they ruminate? Yes. I mean, if they're eating bones, got to got to chew those a few. Just horking up a clot of bone shard to crunch on in the middle of a conversation. Actually, they only have one stomach. That's why they have multiple rows of teeth. It's rumination via teeth layers rather than stomach oh, layers. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, definitely makes a lot of sense. But yeah, the the orc's not doing well. But the goblin, which is, again, called out by Pike as being the race of the person he assaulted, uh, same discussion. The discussion we had about uh, Albin doing this applies here. Um, but the interesting thing here is Albin, or sorry, the interesting thing here is that Pike makes a ploy, uh, attempts a ploy here to try to mitigate the punishment he'll suffer. Uh, oh yes, the orc that uh, that Albin saw, uh, stabbed is uh, not doing well, but the guy I cut up is just fine, right? I'm not a murderer. I'm I'm in the clear. These two are in this together, and. The moment Pike sees an opportunity, he cuts Albin loose and is completely fine with that. Does it basically with a smile. This guy uh, is a pretty cheerful fella in this discussion because he's pretty convinced Kat's on his side for some reason. I'm just horrified to see this Callowin loyalty vanish. Mm. Callowins have to stick together. If Albin can't trust his own sergeant, next he'll have to wonder if they can trust their own general. True, yeah. Kat is thinking about this, though, and uh, <laughs> she says that I'm an actual villain, and I'm not that quick to throw my subordinates under the chariot. Yep, Kat, Kat's pretty loyal to the people around her, actually. Uh, but the important thing here is we get a nice little Callowin, I have to assume, idiom. Uh, or maybe just a Given how they run. <laughs> um, but throwing someone under the chariot... I love this. We talked about this before when we've seen idioms like this, that we get this phrase that's very much a modern phrase translated into the setting, uh, you know, under the bus, under the chariot. It's great. Also, does Calo use chariots? Why would that term be around? That's interesting. Chariots are such a Bronze Age specifically thing, or Iron Age in very specific areas. The fact that they've got that term and that that duck around is very interesting it's just a fun little fun little idiom that shows up i like it wild to exchange bus for chariot though instead of wagon or something 
Right. Like, throw them under the wagon. Yeah. Big, heavy, but not that a chariot's light, but you know, compared I mean, to an automobile, a bus is heavy. Compared to a chariot, wagon's heavy. Chariots are pretty light, aside from like the you know ornamental ones that are for parades. They have to be. They're meant to go fast, being pulled by horses. Right, light in that sense, but they're still large things. I mean, oh sure, like, sure. They're not ten pound balsa wood. I mean, uh, we're getting off topic a little bit here. There are some some of the chariots used, especially like the British chariots would have been British is a rough term. No, the Britons, the British. Some of the British chariots would have been extremely light because they would have a pretty thin wood frame and then uh, like almost wicker support like the the part you're standing on and the walls and everything are basically just woven wicker so they they would actually be very light now i have to look the weight of the vehicle has been estimated to be has been estimated at 25 to 30 kilograms with a maximum manned weight of 100 kilograms this is a biga uh which was ancient rome so probably a racing chariot specifically ancient greeks and the kelp oh biga triga quadriga oh number of wheels huh or, wait, number of wheels or number of horses? Probably horses, actually. The Biga is a two-horse chariot. Let's see what a Quadriga is. Yep. That makes sense. That's so cool. Leaving this in. Uh, yeah, but turns out Calwins can be nasty. Sorry, I was doing more research on chariot weight. Uh, yeah, um, we've you know the the specific mention of race, like we said, not not a red flag, but at least a yellow flag, something to pay attention to. But here. Uh, we have Pike saying, well, yeah, learn my lesson about desertion. Ha ha. Shouldn't have done it. I'm sure the green skins will be howling for a meal. But what can you know? What can you do? Basically, what are you going to do for me here? He doesn't phrase this as the Precy are going to be upset and we're the Callowins. Nope. it's the green skins want to eat me now. And knowing the officer structure of the 15th, that feels so much like he's talking specifically about Juniper because she would be making the decision were it not for Cat, of course. So there's this, it's definitely, it's just that Calvin racism just sort of becoming more and more apparent here. Uh, it colors the previous two comments that we've discussed this episode uh, in a in a pretty major way that he's, again, harping on the race of the people involved in a, using a specifically stereotypical complaint i guess that they eat people but pike's not a particularly aware fella like to take that tack (laughs) to take that tack with cat is a rough one uh but he kind of continues on just without really understanding where cat's coming from or what she's saying and just (laughs) wouldn't it be funny if you sent me back to the lines I wouldn't do that if I were you. You know, you can picture him like leaning in and really trying to get in with Cat as though this is some shared, lighthearted thing. Uh, he's asking for a flogging. Ha, huh, what can you do? Whip me, I guess. And then I'm back to the line. He just has no awareness of what's going on here and what his position is relative to Cat or to a random pricey legionary, to Juniper, to anybody. He's. He's got the vibe of a... I mean, we know this about him, actually. He's got the vibe of a white guy who's never suffered consequences before. And, I mean... Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. However, this all is for naught. Albin is dead already. Pike is dying. Oh, look, there was poison, and Catherine burns it out of her own veins because she can. Of course. 
she requested something painless for them because she doesn't want to be the kind of person who inflicts pain when they don't need to. And for all of her many faults, her difficult decisions, her jadedness, her cruelties even, mm-hmm. I think she succeeds. She doesn't become the kind of person who inflicts pain when they don't need to, though her whole role sometimes seems to be inflicting pain. And I'm including the Aquia arc in this because she sees the pain she means to inflict on her as necessary. Right. It is a, there's an important distinction here. The term need to there is, I think, from her perspective, or, a, or maybe being slightly more generous from the perspective of a of the military culture of the society she finds herself in. Kat frequently inflicts pain in a in situations that I personally would maybe have issue with. But I cannot imagine you leading an army. I right. must say <laughs> exactly. To so, compliment you too vociferously <laughs> on a podcast, right? But it, it's from the from from the perspective of the culture she's in. I think she does a like you said a pretty good job here. Uh, but it, it definitely is a a comment that has to be colored by the context she's in and by, with some some stipulations, some conditionals, I guess. That brings us pretty much to the end of the the chapter, um, and it, this chapter has kind of two ends to my book. That's what a phrase. To my mind, this chapter has sort of two ends, and I just wanted to comment on them as they are presented here. Um, we don't often talk about how the format of this series of of these works is or was a serialized publication. And that doesn't tend to matter for our purposes as a reread, but it does matter in how things are written. And E.E. did a phenomenal job that, frankly, the standard that he set very early on is that chapters end on such a powerful note. We often get excellent one-liners or uh, phrases or callbacks or uh, even cliffhangers, that sort of thing, to end chapters, never in a frustrating way, like, oh, what's going to happen next? Or a, even a, we don't get them in a way that is forced, but the chapter pacing is done so well that we always end on these, maybe not always, but that we usually end on these excellent lines. And I just, I mean, that that's just a mastery of the web serial or the serialized work craft. And I just wanted to comment on that because here, the, the chapter ends, and you can use either of these as the end. We get the, here's the thing, Sergeant. I'm not sure what side I'm on. None of them really fit. But I do know this. Whatever side it is, you're not on it. And she says this as the guy dies poisoned by her hand pretty much directly. That's an amazing end. We get another paragraph talking about some of the lessons she's learned. And then we get her little her little catchphrase, I was about to say. The, the words attached to her banner. Justifications only matter to the just. Traditionally known as catchphrase, yes. Right. <laughs> it's like the Sovereign of the Red Skies being a nickname. <laughs> but it's 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 cool to see the justifications being here. We love that line. But it's just it, this serial more so than most things. The, the ending of chapters is always so good. And we don't comment on it every time because if we did, we would have to comment on it every time. But this one just has two really good endings. It's a very good ending. And so I just wanted to bring that up that, hey, this format is is different than just writing one work and publishing it all at once. And EE 
does it so very well. And uh, we take a lot of time to talk specifically in-universe about things, and we do a lot of mockery of even the protag, because we love her. But it, it, it has to be stated sometimes how good this work is in so many different ways, and this is just one of those ways. What? If we listed all of the ways, we would be here all day, all night. But you are right, and for that reason, I think that is all the time we're going to take for this episode. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking to Red Regretta as we discuss... Penitence. Contrition. And ain't. From Billy? No! Oh, okay. <laughs> Wade in their blood. Podcast Guides Talking Erratic Erratas is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Erratas, a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Ivory Tower Cinematic Orchestral Music by Alex Cardoso Music. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine... It's Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash P-G-T-E-E. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a P-G-T-E-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fae Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, heroic interlude? No, that can't be right. Right.